You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 207, British Opposition and French Distraction. For the last couple of weeks, I've covered some of the issues that the Continental Congress and Continental Army faced as it entered 1779. This week, I want to take a look at Britain and France and see what they were planning for the new year. The North Ministry in London was under siege. For years, they had been assuring Parliament that they had this whole American rebellion under control and that application of military enforcement would restore order and crown authority. The opposition in Parliament had countered that the colonies had grown too powerful and that forcibly restoring order while refusing to address colonial demands was a losing proposition. Events over the past couple of years had proven the ministry wrong and the opposition correct. The failure of General Howe's massive military buildup in 1776 to disperse the Continentals, had been strike one. The loss of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga in late 1777 was strike two. The entry of France into the war in early 1778 was strike three. Only the urging of the king himself was keeping the ministry in place. All of the opposition's worst predictions were coming true, and all of the ministry's attempts to bring a resolution had only seemed to make things worse. Lord North had wanted to resign for some time. The king refused to accept his resignation because he knew that any successor would likely be even less resolute about bringing the American colonies to heel. The king constantly chided North about not pushing the ministry and parliament hard enough to pursue the war. North responded to the king in the most polite way possible by telling the king that he was overstepping his bounds and undermining North's authority by continually going around North to deal with other members of the ministry directly. In short, the king believed that Prime Minister North was too weak and that the king had to do the Prime Minister's job for him. North believed that the king's efforts to act as Prime Minister was undermining North's authority to get anyone to do anything. As the military commanders in North America, the Howe brothers had taken most of the blame in 1778 as both men were recalled and replaced. General Howe would face hearings later in 1779, something I will discuss in more detail in a future episode. But the real target of wrath fell on Secretary of State for North American Affairs, Lord George Germain. It was Germain who failed to coordinate General Howe's attack on Philadelphia with General Burgoyne's need for support in New York. Germain had been the face of government policy in America and a leading advocate of everything that had failed. 
General Howe, Admiral Howe, and General Burgoyne were all pointing fingers at Germain to explain the military failures in America. On top of that, the Carlisle commissioners had returned by the end of the year and were pointing fingers at Germain for telling them that the army was going to go on the offensive in 1778 to provide leverage for the Peace Commission, while at the same time issuing orders to General Clinton to evacuate Philadelphia and dispatch much of his army to other parts of the empire. Politically, Germain was looking more and more vulnerable. The secretary, however, remained in office. The king had asked Lord North earlier in 1778 whether he wanted to make Lord Germain or General Howe the fall guy for the ministry's failures. North had chosen Howe, whose recall had angered powerful factions within the government. Sacking Germain on top of Howe would have angered a whole different faction within the government and probably would have brought down the whole ministry. As a result, the King and Lord North stuck by Germain and allowed him to weather the criticism. William Eden, who was the real power behind the Carlisle Commission, still wanted Germain out. To pacify Eden, North removed the Board of Trade out of the State Department and made it an independent body. Eden, who had been on the Board of Trade, became its new head. He would no longer be working under Germain. Instead, he held a more prominent role in the ministry. That, along with a generous no-show job as housekeeper of Windsor Castle for Eden's wife, was enough to get Eden to put a muzzle on Carlisle and prevent the commission from raising a public fuss about how the ministry had undercut its ability to negotiate peace in America. Germain was not happy with the arrangement and threatened to resign if North pulled the Board of Trade from his department. But the ministry knew that Germain had no political leverage on his own and called his bluff. They took the board away anyway, and Germain did not resign. The king also protested that North was effectively giving a lifetime pension to Eden out of the king's personal funds in order to gain some political cover. North finally convinced the king that they had to do this to maintain the ministry, and the king finally got on board with the plan. The Carlisle failure also benefited from the fact that Parliament was focused more on the disputes between Admirals Keppel and Palliser over the Battle of Ushant, which I discussed back in episode 194. On January 7, 1779, Admiral Keppel's court-martial began, running well into February. That, along with Palliser's subsequent resignation from the Admiralty, took much of the attention from government officials and the public during this time. I should also note that buying off Eden was not really a one-off. The ministry was constantly handing out jobs, pensions, knighthoods, or whatever else it could get to work on important members of the government or parliament to support, or at least not oppose, the war effort. What would be considered bribery today was standard practice in the 1770s. All of this allowed the ministry to remain in power and avoid a vote of no confidence in Parliament. Despite these efforts to hold the government together, the ministry was deeply divided into factions. Everyone had someone else to blame for the failures in America. Focus had turned to the more pressing war with France and a possible invasion of Britain. America had become a sideshow to the main event. 
As such, the ministry did not really come up with any military strategy in America for 1779. Instead, they mostly left General Clinton in New York to figure it out for himself. Outside of the ministry, many British leaders grew more prominent for opposing the war and supporting American independence. By 1779, there were several factions within Parliament who opposed the ministry's efforts to subdue America and increasingly backed a settlement that recognized independence. Opposition members varied in their motivations. Some were ardent Whigs, who thought the colonists shared the same rights as Englishmen and that the Crown was working to subvert all of their rights. Others joined the opposition for more practical reasons. They accepted that the cost of trying to subdue America was simply not realistic. By the end of the Seven Years' War, Britain was over £134 million sterling in debt, at a time when the total UK GDP was only around £91 million. The majority of the government expenditures was interest on the debt. That was why Parliament wanted to tax the colonies in the first place, to retire some of that debt. By 1775, they'd managed to reduce the debt only slightly to around $127 million. The American Rebellion, however, made that shoot right back up again to over $153 million by 1779. The war with France guaranteed tens of millions of even more in debt. Many members joined the opposition for this very practical reason that the colonies were a continual drain on costs. They were not a benefit. They argued that a good trading relationship with the former colonies in America would allow Britain to get the resources it needed without the costs of trying to maintain them as colonies. In other words, it was in Britain's financial interest to accept American independence. Charles Watson Wentworth, the second Marquess of Rockingham, led the largest and most prominent opposition faction in Parliament. Rockingham came from a wealthy family in northern England. When he was a boy, his father led soldiers at Culloden, putting down the Jacobite Rebellion. Now, this helped to form the young man into a fervent Whig, since Whigs tended to be pro-English and more anti-Scottish. Charles's father died when he was 20 years old, leaving him with lands, wealth, and title. Lord Rockingham took his seat in the House of Lords shortly thereafter. He also took positions within the household of King George II. During the Seven Years' War, Rockingham helped to suppress several domestic riots, gaining him even more favor with the crown and becoming a Knight of the Garter. When George III came to power, Rockingham objected to the new king's relationship with Lord Bute. The Scottish lord was rather anti-Whig, and many, like Rockingham, thought that the king was being led astray. Rockingham ended up resigning his position as Lord of the Bedchamber, the king also removed him from several other appointments as Rockingham moved strongly into the opposition in Parliament. After Lord Grenville became Prime Minister and imposed the Stamp Act on the colonies, Rockingham became a leading opponent. After Grenville's government fell, Rockingham actually became Prime Minister for a time and repealed the Stamp Act. He only remained Prime Minister for less than two years before returning to the opposition and from there he continued to oppose the government on many issues, both in the colonies and at home. In 1771, he wrote his former secretary, Edmund Burke, quote, 
I fear indeed the future struggles of the people in defense of their constitutional rights will grow weaker and weaker. It is much too probable that the power and influence of the crown will increase rapidly. We live at the period when, for the first time since the revolution, meaning the glorious revolution of 1688, the power and influence of the crown is held out as the main and chief and only support of government. If we do not exert now, we may accelerate the abject state to which the Constitution may be reduced. Rockingham had opposed further efforts to tax the colonies and suppress protest in the colonies with military force. By 1779, he had come to believe that American independence was the best option for Britain. A second leader in the opposition was Charles Fox. The second son of a baron, Fox would not inherit a title, but his family wealth gave him a top education and access to elite British society. His father bought the 19-year-old Fox a seat in the House of Commons in 1768. Fox initially gained royal favor by supporting the Crown's prosecution of the radical John Wilkes. He received several royal appointments, but did not really take them seriously. He gained a reputation as a gambler and a womanizer. He served in the North Ministry for a short time, but soon parted ways. After leaving the ministry, Fox quickly moved to the vocal opposition. Under the tutelage of Edmund Burke, Fox generally aligned himself with the Rockingham faction in government. Like Rockingham, Fox believed that King George III was undermining the rights established by the Glorious Revolution and was attempting a return to increased royal power over government. He became a strong supporter of the colonial cause. In 1775, shortly after word of Lexington and Concord reached London, Fox took to the floor of the Commons to attack Lord North. He called the Prime Minister, quote, the blundering pilot who had brought the nation into its present difficulties. And he said that the ministry, through its policies, had, quote, lost the whole continent. By 1779, Fox not only supported American independence, but he was sponsoring resolutions to censor Lord Germain and calling for investigations into government corruption and other policies that had damaged Britain so greatly. Another important opposition leader was William Petty, the Earl of Shelbourne. The Irish-born gentleman held wealth and title. For a long time, he served as a close aide of King George III and was actually a supporter of Lord Bute, the man many Whigs had come to loathe. He served actively in the army and fought under General Wolfe at Quebec. Also at Quebec, he formed a close friendship with the future General Charles No Flint's Gray. Shelburne's family wealth enabled him to win a seat in the House of Commons. After his father died in 1761, he ascended to the House of Lords. He also rose to the rank of Lieutenant General in 1772. Shelburne was a pretty moderate establishment guy who generally supported the king, but he fell out of favor after opposing John Wilkes's expulsion from Parliament. From there, Shelburne drifted into the faction led by William Pitt, Lord Chatham. He supported a more moderate position in the colonies and grew to oppose the military crackdown in America. Following the news of Saratoga, Shelburne joined the opposition members who favored American independence. 
these men and others revealed a growing movement among the British leadership to bring down the ministry and cut loose the American colonies. Over in France, King Louis and Foreign Minister Vergen took delight in watching the British government on the verge of collapse. Although the French fleet had not accomplished much in 1778, France had been pushed into the war earlier than it would have liked and was still building up its army and navy for use in 1779. Lafayette returned from America, arriving in France on February 6, 1779. The king promptly arrested the young general. Remember, Lafayette had left France against orders. That said, the charges were mostly a matter of principle. The government was generally happy with the way events unfolded in America. Lafayette was considered a national hero. Lafayette's imprisonment consisted of house arrest in a large mansion where he was reunited with his family. Lafayette wrote a letter of apology, and after a couple of weeks, the Marquis saw the charges dropped and was enjoying hunting parties with the king at Versailles. The French captain also received a commission in the king's dragoons, the equivalent of a colonel. Lafayette was not content, though, with some cushy military position at Versailles. He had returned to France in hopes of playing a key role in the war with Britain. Lafayette began lobbying hard for a full invasion and occupation of Britain, something that had not been attempted since 1066. At first, Lafayette teamed up with a Scotsman by the name of John Paul Jones, who had been without a ship all winter, but who finally received a new one in March 1779. He named it the Bonhomme Richard in honor of Benjamin Franklin. The name of the ship came from the French translation of Franklin's publication known as Poor Richard's Almanac in America. Lafayette and Jones planned a 1,200-man invasion of Britain using a fleet of ships that would slip past the British Navy and land on the English shore. Several French ministers also worked on the plan, which, quite frankly, seemed a bit naive. The idea that 1,200 soldiers could do much of anything other than cause a fuss before they were killed or captured seemed to be a fantasy. The inability to remove soldiers from England once the British mustered their armies against them almost assured a disaster. Senior members of the ministry scuttled the plan and ordered Lafayette to take up a garrison in southwest France, where he was about as far from Britain as he could be while still technically being inside France. At the same time, more senior French officials began working on a much larger invasion plan involving a landing of over 20,000 soldiers. Consideration of this plan took up most of 1779 and was a major focus for military planners at Versailles. In Europe, though, foreign affairs can get really complicated really fast. France was focused on having Britain distracted in the colonies so that France could take advantage of Britain's momentary weakness. France even hoped to draw Spain into the war so that the two countries could take down Britain as their age-old rival. They could only hope to do this by devoting the full force of their military against Britain. Then, at the very end of 1777, Maximilian III, Joseph, a prince-elector of the Holy Roman Empire and Duke of Bavaria, died rather suddenly of smallpox at the age of 50. He did not have any male siblings or children, meaning that control of Bavaria would pass to a distant cousin from another small German state. 
the Holy Roman Empire, Joseph II, saw Maximilian's death as an opportunity. Joseph was married to Maximilian's sister. While this relationship did not give him any legal claim to Bavaria, the emperor decided to make a power play to take control of the principality. Joseph proposed that a different aristocrat should become heir to the throne of Bavaria, and as part of the deal, that person would cede large chunks of Bavaria to the Austrian Empire. Over in Prussia, Frederick the Great took one look at what was happening and determined that this would not stand. If the Austrian Empire took control of Bavaria, it would alter the balance of power within the German states. Protestant Prussia and Catholic Austria were longtime rivals who had been at war many times. Frederick was not going to let his age-old enemy grow more powerful while he sat around and did nothing. So when the Holy Roman Empire put an army of 180,000 men on the Bavarian border in the spring of 1778, the Prussians assembled their own 80,000-man army and began moving into parts of Bavaria themselves. The two sides did not jump into an all-out war, but did engage in a series of raids and small skirmishes designed to prove to the other side that they were serious and that the other side should really back down. This became known as the War of Bavarian Succession. Now you may ask, what does all this have to do with the American Revolution? Well, France was bound by treaty to support Austria militarily. The two countries signed a treaty in 1754. The Holy Roman Emperor had sealed the alliance by marrying off his 14-year-old sister, Marie Antoinette, to the future King Louis XVI in 1770. The French ministry was not particularly happy about this alliance, but they also could not ignore it. Failing to uphold a treaty obligation when an ally went to war was not a good way to maintain one's diplomatic credibility. If France had to divert its military resources to a new war in Europe, its chance to take advantage of Britain's temporary weakness might be lost. As you might guess, Britain saw this as a good thing and was doing everything it could to push Prussia and Austria into an all-out war. The entire continent teetered on the brink of war for all of 1778. France could not go after Britain until after the War of Bavarian Succession was resolved. Vergen focused France's diplomatic efforts on bringing about peace in Central Europe so that he could focus on his war with Britain. Fortunately for France, full war did not happen. The military aggression came to a halt when the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II's mom told him to stop being a bully and make nice with the other leaders. Empress Maria Theresa served as co-ruler of the empire with her son. Once she accepted that Prussia was not going to allow her son's power play to be completed without a massive and costly war that the empire could not afford, she sent peace initiatives to Frederick the Great in Prussia and forced her son to accept mediation of the dispute by Russia and France. The mediation ended up giving a portion of Bavaria to Austria and the bulk to Prussia. The would-be heir to Bavaria got a cash settlement from Prussia the final parties signed the Treaty of Teschen in May 1779, resulting in a restoration of peace in the region, and more importantly to France, freeing it from any potential military obligations that would interfere with its plans against Britain. Putting that behind them, 
France was better able to focus on taking real estate from Britain and supporting American independence. But the kerfuffle over Bavaria had cost the French a valuable year. Next week, we return to Georgia as the British attempt to capitalize on their capture of Savannah by capturing Fort Morris and Augusta. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Knox Press for support at the Robert Morris Circle. Knox Press produces a great many books about the era, including the recent release of Johann Ewald, Jaeger Commander, by James McIntyre. For more details, go to knoxpress.com. My thanks also to Jesse Anderson and Caleb Pasco for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I very much appreciate all of my Patreon supporters, as well as anyone who can contribute one-time gifts. Patreon is an online platform that allows you to set up a monthly continuing donation for as little as $2 a month to help keep this podcast free for those who cannot afford financial support. I'm releasing this episode the day after my live meetup in Philadelphia. However, I'm recording this after show several days earlier. So, don't know how it went yet, but hopefully I'll have more to say about the event next week. Also, next Sunday, July 4th, I'm having a live podcast instead of my normal recorded one. The live podcast will take place at noon Eastern Time. The topic will be American Independence, but the benefit of a live episode is that you can call in and ask questions live on the show. I have a link on my website if you want to listen to the podcast live. If you want to ask questions, you need to install the free Podbean app on your Apple or Google device. This will allow you to talk directly to me during the podcast or send text chats. So I recommend downloading the app ahead of time if you want to interact with me on the July 4th live show. The weekend after that is History Camp America, July 10th. They have 25 speakers lined up, as well as seven site tours, so it should be a great day. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, you can do so at historycamp.org. Use the code AMREV21 to save $5 off your ticket price. If you want to keep up to date on all these things and lots of things coming down the road in the future, you really should consider signing up for my American Revolution podcast mailing list. There's a link to sign up for the list, which is hosted by MailChimp. 
The link is on my website at amrevpodcast.com. I've also added a few new designs to my T Public storefront. Some of my designs include the American Revolution podcast logo, in case you want to help get the word out about the podcast. Other designs are just originals that show your love of the revolution itself. For example, I recently released a Green Mountain Boys design based on their flag, and another one, the Brandywine flag, based on the flag carried by the 7th Pennsylvania Regiment at the Battle of Brandywine. These are pretty obscure designs, but you probably can't find them elsewhere, and I, as I said before, like the obscure ones because it's an ability to show your depth of knowledge about the revolution and also gets people to ask questions about what you're wearing. So please consider ordering a t-shirt this summer. This week on the main show, I looked at the British and French perspectives in late 1778 and early 1779. We find opposition to the war growing within the British government and greater support for American independence as a way to end the war and get Britain out of a costly colonial structure and back to a valuable trading relationship with America. We also looked at France being unable to give full attention to the war because of an unrelated dispute over Bavaria, which caused France to divide its attention on foreign policy. Although the war of Bavarian succession only indirectly related to the revolution, it did have a big impact on British and French war efforts in 1778 and early 79. Although it did not blow up into a full shooting war, it did take its toll the war is sometimes called the Potato War. Both Prussia and Austria sent t many tens of thousands of troops into a region that was already barely able to feed itself. As a result, many thousands of soldiers and civilians died of starvation and starvation-related diseases that year, as there simply was not enough food to go around. It's another case of leaders playing their typical power games and the common peasants suffering as a result. This is one of many reasons why so many poor people wanted to get out of Europe and take their chances on the American frontier. Now, since I discussed two very different topics this week, I thought it only fair to offer two different book recommendations. If you're interested in reading more about British policies that led to the war and to American independence, I'm going to recommend The Long Fuse, How England Lost the American Colonies. 1760 to 1785 by Don Cook. This is a book that really focuses on British policies both before and during the war. About half the book covers the pre-war era and how British tax and trade policies created a huge rift. The second half of the book covers the war years and the steady movement of politicians in London into the camp supporting American independence. The author, Don Cook, was a foreign correspondent in Europe for many decades following World War II. He died in 1995, the same year this book was published. If you want to read more about the other topic I talked about on the show today, the War of Bavarian Succession, and let's face it, who doesn't want to know more about that, you'll want to get a copy of Joseph II and Bavaria, Two 18th Century Attempts at German Unification. Now, this is a relatively short book, about 200 pages, first published in 1965. It covers not only the War of Bavarian Succession, but some of the other events from the decades before and after. The author, Paul Bernard, was a university history professor who specialized in European history and who passed away in 2019. 
As always, I've included links to both books on Amazon, but you can also find e-copies of both books available to borrow for free on archive.org. Speaking of archive.org, my online recommendation is The Memoirs of the Marquis of Rockingham and His Contemporaries by George Thomas Keppel, the Earl of Albemarle. Rockingham, of course, is the lead politician who opposed the revolution in Parliament and, spoiler alert, eventually becomes Prime Minister and oversees the peace treaty with the United States. His memoirs were published in 1852. It gives great coverage of the leading Whigs of this era and is very generous in providing the original text of correspondence and other key documents from this period. As always, you can find the document on archive.org and I've included direct links on my website and blog. My listener question this week comes from George Davis, who wants to know, at what point discussions started about lands west of the original colonies and the politics of those discussions? Well, George, as I've mentioned on earlier episodes, British charters gave vague and sometimes contradictory guidance as to the borders of various colonies, During the colonial era, the Privy Council would decide any disputes, but many disputes remain after the colonial era. We have lots of different states claiming land all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. That, of course, was probably pretty unrealistic. I mean, imagine Pennsylvania's western border reaching all the way to what is today Oregon. Not only would such a long and thin state be unwieldy, but other states, including New York, Connecticut, and Virginia, also claim much of those same lands. States seem to accept the idea that they could not just move west forever. Debate over western lands was pushed off until after the war ended, and even then it remained a contentious issue. The Confederation Congress managed to pass the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, the same year the Constitutional Convention met to put an end to that very Congress. The Northwest Ordinance took what we today call the Midwest and created a territory under military control, not the responsibility of any existing state. It gave the land to a territorial government, and Arthur Sinclair was the first governor. It set up a system so that when a territory became sufficiently populated, it could apply for statehood within the Union. This model proved fairly successful. It was also adopted by the U.S. Congress under the new Constitution, and in that new era, states did seem to become a little less concerned about holding on to Western lands for themselves, and therefore many Southern states also released some of their Western lands to become new states in the 1790s and very early 1800s. Many regional leaders found this beneficial because it gave their region more representation in the U.S. Senate. There's certainly a lot more you can say about all this, but I'm going to have to leave it there for now. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics 
wherever you get podcasts.